so last night, <clears throat> last night, uh, my wife and I had a, uh, uh, you know when you say that you have a fellowship as a family and a dialogue or a conversation, that really just means that you disagree and you fight on something. So Becky and I had that yesterday. Um, so what had happened was um, maybe some of you have this like a fruit bowl or a fruit basket that sits out on the counter. And that fruit sits there. And we usually do a lot of our grocery shopping at the beginning of the month. Well, we are now towards the end of the month, which means we're either starting to run out of stuff or things have just sat there for the entire month. And so we're starting to clean up. It's Saturday. We're going through the fridge. We're going through the kitchen. And I see in this fruit basket a bunch of old, 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 old fruit. And I'm like, we just need to get rid of this. Because everybody knows if you let fruit sit out long enough, what does it do? It goes bad. Nobody says, oh, look, it went good. It always goes bad. And so like, we need to get this out of the house. It's gonna be rotten. It's gonna be gross. It's gonna attract flies. Like nobody wants this in the house. It's gonna smell. So I start just cleaning out stuff. And Becky said, now that was my first problem. I tried to be helpful. And guys, when you try to be helpful, even though your intentions are good, it never works out quite like you'd hope. So I start throwing stuff away. And Becky's like, stop. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, helping? I'm getting rid of all this old nasty fruit so we can get it out of our house. We'll go grocery shopping this, this next week. And she's like, no, 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 I'm saving that. And I'm like, honey, like this is gross. It's old, no one's gonna eat this. And then I learned something yesterday. She's like, no, I have plans for some of this. So there is a bunch of these bananas that were nasty, they were black, I mean, super mushy. Like just looking at it would be like, ugh. And then Becky told me something I hadn't learned before. She said, the grosser the bananas, the better, do you know this next part? The better the banana bread. So I just need to be clear, I'm not sharing this today. <laughs> I made sure she wrapped it well. Like she made two loaves of banana bread last night and I'm like, can I take one to church? And she's like, as long as it comes back. So it's not just dealing with me, you'll have to deal with it, it's dealing with her. But I, I look at this and I'm like, it's amazing how this was made. And, and I'll tell you, sometimes as, as when you cook things, you look at what goes into it, you're like, oh, I kind of wish I didn't know. It was kind of the same thing, like if you would have seen these bananas that went into making something so, so good. I was ready to throw it out. I was ready to get rid of it, get it out of my house. I don't want to see it again. And she's like, no, 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 no. I have plans for it. I have something I want to do from something as rotten as those bananas. I want to do something good with it. That's the story of Joseph, isn't it? The story of Joseph is God taking some pretty difficult and even horrific scenes out of Joseph's life, and he's able to do something great and good with it. To the point of over the last several weeks that we've been studying the life of Joseph, if you've been here, you know that he was sold into slavery after almost just being murdered. You know that he was wrongfully accused and unjustly thrown into prison. He was forgotten about in prison. Like all these different scenes of Joseph's life, we look at in scripture like there's no way that could ever be used for something good. Yet our God is good and he can most certainly use anything for his good. So as we wrap up the story of Joseph today, we're gonna to be at the very last chapter 
of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, if you got a Bible, be there. Um, this is super significant of what Joseph is about to say, and I'd love for you to see it. If you don't have a Bible, if you're new around here, we've got Bibles out in the lobby right next to the t-shirts and where you got your coffee. That's our gift to you. We always want to make sure that you've got God's word uh, that you can have in hand and honestly, uh, and be able to easily understand it as well. So pick one up on your way out if you need one. But in Genesis chapter 50, we get the end of Joseph's story. And as he ends his story, like I said, there's a long recap. Go back and read through it if you want. I don't have time to go through all of it. But through all the ups and definitely all of the downs, God had continued to be faithful. God continued to be with him. And God used every situation for good in the end. Even to the point of there being a seven-year famine that threatened the life of not just Joseph, but his entire family in the entire region, God used Joseph in every one of his bad situations for something good. So what we're going to pick up, it's only going to be three verses. We're going to be a lot, a lot of different places, but mainly looking at these three verses where Joseph is having a quick conversation with his brothers. Joseph's father, Jacob, has passed away, and the brothers are getting a little nervous. They're like, Dad's gone. Wonder if Joseph is going to now seek his revenge. We talked a lot about grace last week and how Joseph showed them grace. But the brothers are still a little afraid and they're still nervous. So I want to read what Joseph says back to them in their worry because it really sums up all of Joseph's life and his story and we're going to pick it apart. Here's what Joseph says. Genesis chapter 50, 50 starting in verse 19. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for what? For good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Three parts of what Joseph says to his brothers, like I said, seem to sum up Joseph's story that I think is very helpful for us today. My prayer for you in hearing what we're going to read today is that you would grow in your confidence as well as your comfort. Confident based on the power of God and your comfort based on the goodness of God. And I feel like that's what Joseph is getting at here. Even though he's talking to his brothers, I feel like he's speaking to us and we can see some great, great comfort and confidence in our own relationship with God. So the first thing we want to point out is that God is in control. That's the first thing that Joseph really poses in a rhetorical question to his brothers. We're saying God is in control. He is all powerful. He is ultimately in control. The churchy word there is that God is sovereign over all things. Nothing surprises him. Nothing shocks him. He is the ultimate authority over the entire universe. God is in control. But Joseph poses this in a rhetorical question. He says this phrase, am I God? Am I God that I can punish you? Am I God that I can take things out of God's hands. See, what Joseph realizes here, he says it, we see this throughout Joseph's story in his life, is that Joseph recognizes the place of God and the place of Joseph. He recognizes where God is at positionally and where we are at positionally, that God is in control and we are not, that God is God and we are most certainly not. That he is Lord and we are servant. He is king and we are most certainly not king. He says, am I God? Absolutely not. And he says, I'm not going to punish you as if I were God. I'm not going to try to take God's 
place. I'm going to stay in my place, and I'm going to let God stay in his place. So important for us to understand. Because so quickly, especially when emotions get the best of us, when we get worried, when we get frustrated, when we get angry, we tend to take God's place. God, why don't you take a seat for a minute? Let me take over for a little bit. God, why don't you take a back seat? I've got this covered. And we start to move in and take the place of God. New Testament, we're told this about our position and the position of God. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. You don't have to turn there. I'll throw them on the screen for you if you want. We're told this. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God. Right there, we understand our place, don't we? We are to humble ourselves, take a lower position in compared to the mighty power of God. And at the right time, he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries, give all your cares to God. Why? For he cares about you. Don't take the place of God. No matter the situation, no matter their circumstance, no matter the, the level of difficulty, Sometimes we think we can take care of this better than God can. But we are to humble ourselves under the mighty power of God. Let him take care of things. Let him move things forward. Why? Because he genuinely cares about you. Sometimes we think we're the ones that care most about our own things. And God's like, no, no, no. I care about you more than you care about you. I care about you more than you could possibly imagine. So we stay in our place. We let God stay in his place because he cares for us. Do you know what we call it when things get out of place, when things are not in their rightful place? There's a word for that. Messy. That's the word. When you walk into your kitchen and there's dishes out of place, you say, my kitchen is messy. When you walk into your kid's bedroom and nothing is in its rightful place, you say, it looks like a tornado went through here. This is a wreck. This is chaos. When you go and clean out your minivan from experience, you say, this is a disaster because there's so many things in here that don't need to be in here. It's a mess. Let me just suggest that if you feel like your life is a mess, maybe things aren't in the right place. Just maybe. And things start to feel chaotic Things start to feel a little crazy. Things start to feel out of control because you have tried to take control of something you have no business taking control of. So can we pose the same rhetorical question that Joseph does? Am I God? Of course not. I'm gonna keep him in his rightful place as king, as Lord, as savior, as God almighty, and I'm going to humble myself under him. And I'm gonna follow his ways and trust his timing because he cares for me. God is in control. Can you let him have control? Can we humble ourselves underneath him? That's the first thing we see out of Joseph's response to his brothers. Second thing we see is that God is good. That's obviously a big theme, not just for today, but through the life of Joseph, that God is good. We read that out of Psalm 100. We see that again here. Joseph's words, as he's talking to his brothers, he says, you intended to harm me. That's not good. But God intended it all for good. 
And this is just like our God. This is how good our God is, that he is so good that his motives are good, his intentions are good, his purpose is good, his plans are good. Everything about God is good. Everything about God is good. But again, that doesn't mean everything we experience in life is good. Not at all. I mean, Joseph calls it out. What you did to me was so not good. What you did to me was the opposite of good. Planning to murder me, leave me for dead, and ended up selling me into slavery. There's nothing good about that. But our God is so good that he can transform. He can take water and turn it into wine. He can take a blind man and give him sight. He can take harmful, bad intentions and turn it into something that saves the lives of many people. Only our God, only, please hear this, only our God could take something as ugly and as horrific as the cross and turn it into something that we look at today and actually celebrate. That God took something that was intended to bring death and he used it, he turned it, he transformed it to now be used as something that brings us life. That's how good our God is. That he can take any hurt, any pain, any crisis, any tragedy, and he can use it for good. Now, I have no doubt there's a handful of you here today that have experienced something that bad doesn't even begin to describe or define. And you hear this and you immediately think of the wounds and the scars that you still have. And it's very tempting for us to do one of two things, to either minimize the tragic and horrible things that have happened. Oh, it's no big deal. Not true at all. It is a big deal. Call it what it is, evil, sinful, destructive. Or it's easy to look at the things that we have experienced and say, well, it's too extreme for God to ever do something good with that. Uh, you think Joseph's story is bad. No, you don't know my story. There's no way God could do anything good from what I've done and what I've been through. That's our tendency, to minimize it or to see it as so extreme that God could never do anything good with it. I hear you. And if you'll let me, I want to just give a different perspective. This does not take away your pain. This does not fix the bad. This does not fix the hurt. But I want you to see just maybe a different perspective on how God can still use it for something good. An author, Clayton King, is also a pastor, wrote a book called Overcome. I want to read an excerpt from his book. He said this, Nothing testifies to the deep, authentic reality of God's presence in the life of a believer, like watching that believer keep their eyes on Jesus while enduring hell on earth. Observing a Christian cry out to God in confusion, pain, and anger, while maintaining the faith to keep calling, to keep weeping, to keep reaching out in hope and trust is perhaps the greatest apologetic for the Christian faith the world will ever see. Our suffering has the power to change those who are watching us suffer. That does not take away the pain. That does not fix what was bad. But God is good. 
and he can use all things for something good. All things. I hope that gives you confidence in not just the power of God, but the goodness of God. That we can say, no matter what I've experienced, no matter what I've done, no matter what's been done to me, as bad as it is, God is still good. And he can use all things for his good. In the New Testament, Paul tells us almost those exact same words. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we're told this. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Please be careful. That is, man, maybe in the top five of verses taken out of context. <laughs> Let me tell you what it is not saying. It is not saying that everything that happens is good. It's not saying that God causes all of those things to happen. No, God does not cause pain. He's not causing hurt. He most certainly can use it, but he's not causing it. What we're told here, not just in the story of Joseph, but also in Paul's words in Romans 8, 28, is that no matter what, God is in control and he is good. And he is so much in control and he is so good that he can use everything, absolutely everything, for something good. That's not something that we just wrap our heads around in one moment or in two minutes talking about it. But I pray that gives you, again, confidence and comfort, knowing God's in control, but also that he is good. The last thing we see within Joseph's talking to his brothers is a promise. He says, no, don't be afraid. Look, I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by, kindly, by speaking kindly to them. And what we're gonna see is that it's not just Joseph making a promise, it's actually reflective of a much, much bigger promise. And what we see through the life of, of Joseph is that God keeps his promises. God is good on his word. He is in control, he is good, and he keeps his promises. Like I said, this part of Joseph's uh, dialogue is Joseph making a very personal promise to his brothers. You have nothing to be afraid of. I'm gonna take care of you and your children. Joseph's promise to his brothers. Like I said, that's reflective of a much larger promise that actually goes way back before Joseph was even born. Now stick with me. We're gonna go through some history here and I want you to see how this all ties together. So try to follow along. If you go all the way back to Genesis 17, technically this happens in chapter 12. We're gonna fast forward to chapter 17. This is the promise that God started with, with Joseph's great-grandfather. You with me on the family tree? So you have Joseph, his father, Jacob, who we read about in Joseph's story, his father is Isaac, and then the father of Isaac is Abraham, or now called Abram. That's where God begins this promise. Listen to the promise that God makes to Abram, which again is Joseph's great-grandfather. Genesis 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai. Remember that. We're going to come back to it. Which means God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant or a promise with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. Scroll down to verse six. God says, I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. 
Like that's a really big promise. And there's a whole other story with Abraham and Sarah, like the whole thing, whole other story there. But God's making a promise to one man saying, you, I know you don't have kids yet, but I'm going to give you kids. I'm not just going to give you a kid. I'm going to give you so many descendants that they are going to be a nation. In fact, they're going to be many nations. And it's going to be such a significant nation that kings are going to come from your descendants. That is a huge promise. So then Abram has his son Isaac, Isaac then has Jacob, and if we fast forward to Genesis chapter 35, still before we get to the story of Joseph, this is God reaffirming that same promise to Joseph's father, Jacob. Look at what God says to Jacob. Look if it sounds familiar. Then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants. Does that sound familiar? It's almost word for word. What God told Abram, he's now told Jacob. Said that promise that I made before is still the promise that I'm gonna keep today. Verse 12, and I will give you the land I once gave Abraham and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants after you. Here's why I bring that up. You have a promise that God made to Abram. You will be a nation. Kings will come from you. He affirms, reaffirms that promise to Jacob. You, I made this promise to to your grandfather. I'm going to make it to you as well that you and your descendants will be a nation. Kings will come from you. That sounds great. But then we have the story of Joseph. And the story of Joseph is one where this family that's supposed to become a nation is the most dysfunctional family we've ever seen. To the point where the brothers are, are fighting so much that they plan to kill one of their brothers. They actually ship one of their brothers off, Joseph, and sell him into slavery. Wait, wait, wait. That is the family. That's the descendants that are going to make a nation. It doesn't look like they can even get along, much less become a nation. All of a sudden, what seemed like a great promise doesn't seem like it's even possible, does it? And then the story of Joseph continues. Where now it's not just about Joseph and his family, but there's this great famine in the entire land. So this family that was given a promise to become so numerous that they would become a nation, they might not make it through this famine. They're starving. Only two years into the famine is when they started to starve. So if I'm Jacob, and I recognize the promise that God had given me and my family, I'm thinking, God, that's a great promise, but there's no way it's ever going to happen. God, that's a great promise, but I don't see how it could possibly work out that way. You're telling me that we're going to be a great nation? My, my sons can't even be in the same room together. You're telling me we're going to be a great nation? Right now we have no food. We're going to starve. So God, you're great at making promises, but God, can you keep that promise? And then we go through the story of Joseph. And we see how God was working in the background, using all things for his good. I told you to remember it. Do you remember how God referred to himself in both promises to Abram and Jacob? What did he call himself? Do you remember? El Shaddai. El Shaddai, we translate it in our, in our Bible as God Almighty. No one and nothing is above him. No one has more power. No one has more control. No one has more goodness. If you were a Hebrew, if you were Jacob, or if you were Joseph, if you were Isaac, or if you were Abraham, and you heard God call himself El Shaddai, you would have a little bit of a different picture. Like in our room here today, when I say El Shaddai, God Almighty, you probably think of like Braveheart. 
That's probably the scene most of you guys thought of when I said God Almighty. I mean, Braveheart, painted face, warrior. The picture that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph would have had of El Shaddai is that of a mother. El Shaddai means all-sufficient one, literally. And the picture that they would have had is the mother and her infant. God's saying, I'm complete. I'm everything you need. You are helpless without me. I give you everything you need. I'm the one that breathes life into you. I'm the one that feeds you. I'm the one that holds you. I'm the one that protects you. I am your everything. And El Shaddai, through the entire life of Joseph, continued to be El Shaddai, continued to be in control, continued to be all things good. So the promise that Joseph makes is part of the bigger promise that God has made. If you're in Genesis 50, when Joseph said what we just read, talking to his brothers, if you flip over one page, you go to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, we're told this. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. Oh, you read from verse 7? But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the entire land, thus becoming the nation of Israel. God is in control. God is good. And God keeps his promises. God makes some pretty incredible promises. And sometimes in our lives, when we walk through the difficulties and the problems, when we walk through the not good, we say, God, that's a great promise you've made. How are you ever going to keep it? But our God can be trusted to keep his promises. One last verse, let me leave you with this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. We are told, so let us hold tightly without wavering, without faltering, without doubting, without questioning. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promises. Our hope is only in God through his son, Jesus Christ, because he is in control. He is good, and he keeps his promises. And the greatest promise that we hold on to, that promise that God gave Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, that was specifically for that family and that group of people, the Israelites. The promise that he has given us is that for whoever believes in his son Jesus shall not perish, can you finish it with me, but have the gift of eternal life. That's the hope that we have today. That's the hope that we've been given. That God was able to take the cross, intended for death, transform it into what gives us life through his son, Jesus. That's the hope that we hold on to. So confidence and comfort, no matter what you have experienced, no matter what you are walking through today, no matter what life will throw at you later on down the road, hold on to the hope that you have that's only found in Jesus. That gives us confidence, that gives us comfort, because he's in control, he is good, and he always, always, always keeps his word and his promises. Today, we're gonna take communion together. 
intentionally to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. The life that we have gained because of his death. If you were um, able to grab communion on your way in, go ahead and grab that out. If not, we'll have some guest services, people walking around. Just kind of raise your hand if you need communion. And our guest services team will be with you in just a moment. Communion is something that we do periodically for this purpose. To remember the hope that we have and to remember the promise that God made. The promise is that whoever believes in his son Jesus, that he truly is God and truly man, 100% man, 100% God, lived a sinless life and sacrificed himself on the cross for us, taking our sins away. Scripture says as far as the east is from the west, we receive that free gift of grace, not because we earn it and not because we deserve it. It's because he loves us so much, he freely gives it. And when we receive that grace, we are then be, we are given that hope of eternal life. He calls us sons and daughters, part of the family of God that can never be taken away. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, I would encourage you to have a quiet moment between you and your Lord, between you and your King, between you and your Savior, to thank him for what he's done, for his power, for his goodness, and that he always keeps his promises. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much. Thank you for being El Shaddai. That we need nothing and no one other than you. God, forgive us for the times where we try to take control. Where we try to take your place in our own lives. So in this moment, God, we confess that we are full of sin and that our lives are a mess because we just don't have things in the right place. So in this moment, may we come to you as we are, mess and all. Thank you for being a heavenly father that calls us to come to you as we are, mess and all, without trying to clean everything up first. So in this moment of remembrance, the sacrifice of your son Jesus, we come to you. We recognize your greatness, your goodness, and your faithfulness. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, for the sins of the world. Thank you for giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us, convicts us and challenges us and changes us from the inside out to live a life and to become more and more like you and who you desire us to be. Thank you for being so good when life is not. Thank you for being so good when others are not. May we put our hope only in you. In Jesus' name, amen.